0: This episode of New Politics was released on the sixth of May, twenty twenty-three, and produced on the land of the Wongal and Wajuk people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, will he stay or will he go? The future of Scott Morrison in Parliament. The company a prime minister should keep. Will we ever ever get to a republic? And how soon before we see a new major political party in Australia? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, seven-time champion at Wimbledon. And a big thank you to all of our new Patreon subscribers, and we've had a few new ones during the week, so thank you very, very much. We wouldn't be able to put the program together without your support. Well, maybe we probably could, but it just wouldn't be as good, and we'd probably have to go out and do some busking instead, so... You can support us for as little as $3 per month, and just to let you know that we've also got a $20 per month tier on Patreon, where we'll send out a hard copy of the three books that we've published over the past three years to you, so that's quite an unbelievable deal, David. It's a great deal. It's
2: amazing that people are still listening to us. I think it's great.
1: Well, it's been five long years, David. I
2: know. I know. I think it's great that people are buying the books too and I hope that you're enjoying them and that it's opening up new levels of conversation for you and I'd love to hear your feedback on them too.
1: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is on the verge of leaving politics, or so we're told, but it's a story that we've heard quite often since he led the coalition to a loss at the 2022 federal election. It was suggested that he was going to resign on the election night last year. That didn't happen. It was then suggested that he was going to resign in the weeks after the election. That also didn't happen. Towards the end of last year, the beginning of this year, and then he was going to wait until the budget... And now it's going to be after July, possibly the end of this year. So it's a never-ending speculation. But there have been reports that Scott Morrison has been sounded out by a number of defence corporations in Britain who were keen to employ him in an AUKUS-related position. Now, we do have to be careful about these reports. There are no names attached to the sources. There are no companies mentioned in these reports. And the source of these reports could actually be Scott Morrison himself, who, after Kevin Rudd, was probably the biggest leaker of misinformation to the media in Parliament. Now, there's a lot of people who would like Scott Morrison to leave Parliament as soon as possible and never be heard of again, but it does bring up the question of the life of ministers after they leave Parliament. And if Scott Morrison does take up the job with the British Defence Corporation, it's also a question of whether it's in Australia's national interest for him to do so.
2: The reason that we have prime ministerial pensions on top of the standard backbencher or parliamentary pensions is so that the Prime Minister doesn't need to get further work. Now, I understand that if you're quite young or relatively young, Kevin Rudd, Scott Morrison's in his mid-50s, Julia Gillard is in her early 60s, you still have productivity, you still have something to contribute, but you've reached the highest office in the Australian Parliament, Governor-General, Chief Justice of the High Court, Prime Minister is about as high as you can go. And I think it's rather problematic to take lesser jobs after that. And by lesser jobs, I mean quite a lot of stuff. If you go and work for -for not-for-profits or for the United Nations doing humanitarian work or that type of thing, I don't have that much of a problem with that, to be quite honest. I think that's building on your expertise and experience as a prime minister to build into the bigger global community. And that makes sense. I think taking tacky jobs with private firms suggests something else to your character. And I know that Paul Keating took work in the bank, Bob Hawke took works in the banks. I didn't think it was a good look. And it's come back to bite Keating somewhat with his alleged ties to China and his defense of China over the last few weeks. That's a whole other debate, by the way, but it's not terribly dignified. If my memory serves me correctly, the first pension to be handed out was to Governor General Hopeton, who was on the brink of ruin through a bad gambling habit. And so they thought they'd better... You didn't want a homeless ex-governor general in in Britain. And it made sense, I think, for the Prime Minister to become some kind of dignified ex-states person. Uh, Again, working in certain jobs I don't think is a problem, working in the United Nations or the WHO or any of those, or working for -for not-for-profits in charities that you feel an affinity to. I think that is a dignified way to spend your post-political career. Staying on the backbench, which a lot of Liberal Prime Ministers did, Gorton, probably not the best example, McMahon stayed on the backbench, again, probably not the best example because they were troublemakers and stirrers, but they looked after their local division. They remained as elder statesmen on the backbench, prepared to and, and occasionally asked for Advice in particularly thorny problems. I don't think this is inappropriate either. Wayne Swan, as probably a more appropriate example, having reached the pinnacle of his career as treasurer, stayed on the Labour backbench and was there as a voice of reason, as a voice of calm, as a voice of wisdom. Whether real or perceived is a whole other debate for a whole other time. But Wayne Swan, I think, did a very good job and was able to retain a dignity.
1: Well, I guess the difference with Scott Morrison is that since he lost the last federal election, he's rarely been in his office. He's barely been seen in the seat of Cook. He doesn't answer any questions in Parliament. There are no questions asked of him in Parliament. He has been doing some work on the conservative speaking circuit, but that's about it. And as you suggested before, it might also be that case that once you've been the Prime Minister and stopped being the Prime Minister, well, there's not really much more that you can do Hmm. or achieve in politics. And also of the last ten prime ministers, seven of those left politics when they either lost an election or lost their job to a challenge. And the ones that did hang around were Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott and Morrison. And now the reasons for Kevin Rudd staying in politics were pretty obvious (laughs) at that time. He just wanted to get his job back after losing it to Julia Gillard, and didn't the Labor Party pay for that process? Tony Abbott, well, it wasn't so clear. Maybe he didn't have anything else to do, but he did end up losing the seat of Warringah to Zali Stegall in 2019. With Scott Morrison, it's actually hard to see why he's still in Parliament. And sure, you could argue, well, the allure of the $210,000 salary is hard to resist once you realise that you don't really have to do very much to earn it, but it probably really is time for Scott Morrison to leave Parliament. Either leave Parliament or become
2: an excellent local member and fill that role, or the statesman. Trouble is, of course, I don't know that anyone in the Liberal Party wants to talk to him at the moment, and if you're not sure why, we've got about 60 podcasts as to why that is. <laughs> the other thing is, too, is that, Even if he was a deeply beloved figure, as these same leakers seem to be suggesting, people aren't interested in what he has to say anymore. He really became yesterday's man almost instantly, although we're still feeling the after effects or the aftershocks of his prime ministership. As to is he being offered a job, all of these leaks tend to suggest the types of jobs that Morrison might be interested in, Sure but they come out at opportune time. At one point, he was suggesting he could make a decent head of the NRL in New South Wales, and now he could work in AUKUS. Now, there is a precedent of Tony Abbott taking that job as British Trade Commissioner or something, which I thought was completely inappropriate. Working for another country after you've been the Prime Minister of Australia... And working in that country's interests, I mean, if he'd been, you know, the Australian representative to Brexit, I could understand that. I'd still think, why did they hire, of all the people in the world, but no, fair enough. But it was working for the British government. It seemed to have died very quickly for reasons that I haven't seen, whether it was a change of prime minister, Rishi Sunak, or who swept out and replaced these types of jobs and people as happens with new governments. Whether Tony Abbott underperformed
1: somewhat and was found not to be a good fit for the role. Well, he might still be actually doing the job, but there's not there wasn't much for him to do in the job in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's true. He still might be doing the job. Scott Morrison has... Not impressed on the speaking circuit. I think he thought he'd be speaking to all these conservative think tanks and expensive bodies at 10 and 12 and 15,000 dollars, and then you know you finally up it to I think Obama gets 250,000 dollars a speech, for example. The difference is, of course, Obama is a compelling and highly professional speaker, probably one of the best speakers of the 21st century. Scott Morrison isn't.
1: I guess that goes without saying, but there have been many politicians who have moved directly from Mm. parliament into lucrative positions in the private sector, and you mentioned some of those before, but we only tend to hear about the more prominent ones. So Christopher Pine moved to a defence industry client, Martin Ferguson as a mining industry lobbyist, Bob Carr many years ago moved to Macquarie Bank, Mike Baird to National Bank, Gladys Berejiklian moved over to Optus, and even though there's still those corruption reports that come out about her from the New South Wales ICAC. Mark Arbib goes off to work at Crown Casinos. Now, all of these people are not going to work at the reception or a junior office position. They're moving into very well-paid positions, and they're hired for their networking connections and being able to open up doors to political leaders, either at a state or federal level. And There is meant to be a restriction on working in the private sectors for ministers and for prime ministers for 18 months after they leave their portfolio, but this can't really be enforced. Now, ex-politicians do have the right to work after they Mm. leave office, if that's what they wish to do, just like anyone else who leaves a job. But most of these positions are conflicted, and generally they try and use up and exploit all the contacts that they would have made when they were supposedly working on behalf of the Australian public. And in most High profile corporations. If you lose your job, you have to hand over all of the contacts, your mobile phone, computer, all of your documents. And if you're fired, well, all of that stuff is taken off you and you march out of the office by security. Now, maybe we could have some sort of ceremonial marching out of parliament by security of all of those politicians that lose their seat or decide to retire, just like they do when the Speaker of the House is appointed and march into parliament. But Whatever the case is all of that material and all of those contacts have been made on behalf of the Australian public and perhaps these restrictions do need to be tightened up a little bit
2: I think there should be penalties and severe ones for for hiring outside you know you're a 30 year old young professional who gets into parliament for one term and then you're out I don't have a problem with people continuing their career elsewhere. But when you've been in a long time and you've reached the pinnacle, if we take these jobs seriously, if we think that being Prime Minister of Australia should be an important and symbolic job, if we think that being a Minister of the Crown is the highest role that one can play in the betterment and furtherment of Australia, taking jobs that either use those positions as advantages to private firms is i think awful and i think that private firms should be given a massive disincentive if you want to hire the ex prime minister that's great but you get taxed at 95% no deductions and that there's a salary cap too you just want to take the incentive out of out of it because it's just not right i don't think i think we've had so many prime ministers who went on to dignified post-political careers from both sides. And we now have people running roughshod over the idea. We've got to rethink what do we want out of the role of prime minister? What do we want out of government consultancy roles? Do we want government consultancy roles to be
1: sleazy money pots for ex-politicians?
2: Or private roles, you know?
1: But I think the one thing for sure is that Scott Morrison is irrelevant to Australian politics right now, and his low level of interest and activity as a parliamentarian suggests that he also understands that this is the case, and he's he's not even trying to make it interesting. He's not even trying to cause mischief on the backbench in the same way that Kevin Rudd did or Tony Abbott did, and he's... Not a member of the government anymore, so he can't be made into one of those useless envoys that Morrison set up for Tony Abbott and Barnaby Joyce when he first became Prime Minister. So i said this before, but it probably is a case of the sooner he goes, the better because he's not very much used to the Liberal Party and he's not very much used to the Australian Parliament.
2: Yeah, the chances are, having looked at the voting figures, he damaged the seat badly, probably irreparably. But the chances are that, that they're not going to lose it. It will depend on what way the non-liberal right-wing parties go. Uh, if, if they stand people like One Nation and how their preferences flow, I think. And if they lose a seat, it's only one more seat. It's It doesn't change the government's position any. It doesn't change the opposition's position any. If he hasn't been tapped on the shoulder, he needs to be tapped on the shoulder. I'm happy to help in that panel that go and seem. I think there's a long line forming next to me saying, oh, me too, me too.
0: (laughs) You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon.
1: The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, attended the wedding of Kyle Sandylands and Tegan Kynaston, and there were quite a few protests about this. A lot of this has fallen along partisan lines. Kyle Sandylands is one of the most offensive people on radio. He said some offensive things on air about women, about people with disability, about a rape victim. He made jokes about concentration camps, has been fat shaming as well. So he's a pretty repulsive person. But being the Prime Minister is about trying to appeal to as many people as possible. And Kyle Sanderlands does have a massive audience. And the Kyle and Jackie O Show is the leading morning program in Sydney with almost 200,000 listeners every day. And there's also a syndicated program that's broadcast all around Australia. So being on good terms with a massive media personality does have its political benefits for the Prime Minister. And it wasn't just the Prime Minister who was there. Newly elected Premier Chris Minns in New South Wales. He was also invited and attended. And this was almost like a payback. And thank you for providing support during the 2023 New South Wales election campaign. Here's what Anthony Albanese said about attending the Lands wedding.
3: Well, I, I'm not in charge of the invite list. Uh, I was invited uh, by Carl Sandiland's uh, to uh, his wedding, uh, which is taking place uh, tomorrow in Sydney. I accepted that invitation uh, and uh, I intend to uh, a- attend uh, the wedding. Carl uh, Sanderlands is uh, someone who's a significant figure. And one of the things about Carl Sanderlands, I'll say this, a-, a bloke who at one stage was homeless, living on the streets of Sydney, and has grown into someone who is a significant uh, public figure, uh, is a a part of uh, what is an Australian success story. Uh, So I uh, was invited uh, to the wedding. I said I would go, and I keep my commitments, including to Kyle Sandilands.
1: Ultimately, this isn't such a big deal, and probably will be forgotten about next week, but We also have to think about what sort of reaction there would have been if Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister and was attending the wedding instead of Anthony Albanese. It probably would have been the same sort of reaction and also along partisan lines. But it does show that a Prime Minister needs to be careful about the company that they keep. There were prominent Sydney business people
2: at the wedding and for a long time... New South Wales uh, residents We know what that usually means Sometimes they're called Prominent Sydney racing
1: identities Or colourful racing identities Colourful racing
2: identities Abe, no, Abe Saffron's been long dead But he was one of those Described as such uh, Perscalia was another one Again, dead a long time But described as such It's because of the libel laws In New South Wales They can't really call them What they're really known for Even though Everyone knows. Everyone knew that Perscalia ran two or three illegal casinos. Well, he was very colourful. He was very colourful. Everybody knew what Abe Saffron was up to, more or less. Everybody knows, or at least thinks they know, what John Abraham is allegedly up to. And for all we really know, John Abraham may be the most nicest, most honest, most straight, most ethical person who ever walked the face of the earth. It's unlikely. (laughs) He's known for... Work that isn't generally accepted in polite society is legitimate and legal work he was at the wedding John abraham it's easy for a prime minister to not go to things they've got a whole staff who will say no and yeah, there may have been some deal made uh, in the election if I go on the show well you'll have to come to my wedding to make my wedding look good sure okay, I'll do that and again, you're right it. This is a th- the type of thing that can blow over. It's also the type of thing that can stick. A couple of years with a new revitalised Liberal Party, maybe under a different name, photos of Albo and Minzi enjoying themselves at Kyle Sanderland's wedding with John Ibrahim and, and other less savoury types, shall we say, could damage an electoral campaign. And I know I'm going to get people to say, oh, if you say this stuff, they'll think of it and then, you know, you'll you'll be the cause of the – I don't think I will. As I said, I think it will blow over pretty quickly. New prime ministers are allowed mistakes too and new premiers are allowed mistakes. That's on both sides. But it it was an odd choice to make.
1: Oh, for me, this is a different version of the John Laws and Paul Keating sort of relationship, or Alan Jones and Bob Carr, and just that it's 20 or 30 years down the track. And it's the same sort of offensive right wing garbage that crops up occasionally. It's based on a punching down type of politics. And these people do have large audiences, and successful politicians do want to connect and do need to connect to these audiences. And if a political leader wants to maintain popular appeal, well, they have to appear on these types of shows and appear to be a friend to everyone, even if it means singing a silly song live on radio or playing an ACDC song on a guitar, which is what Chris Minns did on the Kyle and Jackie O show just before the recent New South Wales election, and look at him now, he's now the New South Wales... (laughs) Premier and this is part of the song and dance and the switch to vaudeville that Paul Keating talked about the things that you have to do in politics and a few people have said to us well hang on you never would have seen Gough Whitlam or Bob Hawke getting up to this sort of stuff but I can tell you now that if Gough Whitlam and Bob Hawke were still alive today and they were still the Prime Minister at the age of 110 or whatever it is this is exactly what they would be doing and I'm not condoning it but this is the sort of silliness that Mm -hmm. political leaders have to do ...in the modern age. And I think it's also a question of what level does a Prime Minister... ...or a political leader take this sort of stuff to... For Scott Morrison, his entire prime ministership was based on publicity stunts and doing these types of events every single day. And we used to wonder, well, does he actually get around to doing any work that he's meant to be doing? There wasn't any evidence of that. So I think it ends up being a problem for a political leader if this sort of activity and this sort of action becomes representative of a leader's behaviour. And so far for Anthony Albanese, it isn't. I think you're
2: right. I mean, I don't know the personal history between... Anthony Albanese and Kyle Sanderlands. I mean, they've probably known each other for many years, both being fairly prominent Sydney citizens, and I don't mean that in the way I just used it. (laughs) But Anthony Albanese has been a a long time. Um, 96, he got into office. Sanderlands has been top rating for 20 years. And the other thing too, there's only a couple of hundred thousand people who listen to Sandalands with any regularity. The total Sydney radio audience is about a million. Uh, And then you've got to divide the 10 or 12 major stations. And then you have to divide the community radio stations and the smaller radio stations. There's 20 or 30 radio stations in Sydney. So it's a bit like Alan Jones. What is the influence? It's not really on listenership because there's not enough people listening.
1: and There have been a few commentators on both the left and the right who have said that this week was Anthony Albanese's worst week since he became Prime Minister and... Some have suggested that he's lost his political antenna and that's because he's gone off to a shock jocks wedding. He made the AFL's stadium announcement in Hobart last week. He's gone off to London for the coronation as well and this is in the background of a housing crisis in many parts of Australia and not making any announcements on raising job seeker payments and we're not going to say anything more about this until we see what's in the budget next week but one person's opinion on the worst week ever is someone else's opinion as the best week ever and And some of these issues will play out differently to different people. An announcement of an AFL stadium in Hobart might not be great news for the people of Hobart, and we pointed this out last week, but it probably is an announcement that was made for the benefit of mainland Australia politically. AFL fans all around Australia will probably see this as the good news stories, and they'll probably never go and visit Hobart anyway. And if there is any political heat over this issue locally, it's probably going to be felt by the Premier of Tasmania, Jeremy Rockcliffe, and not Anthony Albanese. So I still don't think this is a good look, but all of this plays out to different people in different ways. The Sandylands issue, that's more of a Sydney-centric issue. Personally, I wouldn't have gone, but I'm not the Prime Minister. And ultimately, for all of those stupid and offensive things that Kyle Sandylands has said... He's a media personality, and if we are going to compare who else is keeping friends, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison had a close friend who was a QAnon fanatic staying with him at Kirribilli House. We also had Peter Dutton going off to the funeral of George Powell, who protected pedophile priests within the Catholic Church and was found guilty of child sexual abuse before being acquitted. So... In politics, you do have to choose your friends carefully, but sometimes those friends are going to choose you and sometimes you can't do very much about it. I think it
2: was Paul Keating who said, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. And the other thing I was going to say, of course, is I didn't i didn't think I saw you at the wedding. I don't know if there's much more we can say on this. It wasn't the best decision he could have made. There were plenty of worse decisions he could have made, I guess. It's one thing. If the wind blows that way, he won't do it again, I don't think. I think he's a smarter political operator than uh, his predecessor. We, yeah, We don't know what's gone in in the background. I think it, it was more to Kyle Sanderland's benefit that the Prime Minister and the Premier be at the wedding than it was to their benefit. Even though he's a very Sydney-centric person, he's not very popular outside of the radio show. I don't think he can object to me saying that. It's pretty objectively true. I've never met him. I don't know him, so I can't comment to the things that are said about him outside of what he has done publicly. I suspect that we may have reached the end of the Labour honeymoon period too, which means that they now have to work a little bit harder to sell the message. And that's not a bad thing. You know, Again, my whole thing is good government. Extraordinary people doing extraordinary jobs, not mediocre people doing bad jobs. And it's a government that I said earlier really has the potential to be that consistently. And we hope that it happens.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support new politics through Patreon.
1: There is a coronation this weekend and there doesn't seem to be too much interest in this event in Australia so far. The Prime Minister is already in London and has met the King and will be attending the coronation. I think it would have been more appropriate for the Governor-General to attend. Nick Cave and Sam Kerr are also going to attend and I think we usually send a kangaroo or a wombat as a gift for these types of royal events so (laughs) let's see what happens there. Anthony Albanese did have an interview in London with Piers Morgan and was asked about his Republican tendencies and whether Australia will move towards becoming a Republic in the near future.
3: I think you can be a lifelong Republican, which I am, and still respect our institutions. And certainly I have a great deal of respect for King Charles. And it's a great honour to be here representing Australia. All Australians uh, wish uh, King Charles will, uh, regardless of the different views that people will have about our constitutional arrangements. I think Australia should have our own head of state and I'm of the view uh, that I think that should be a, an appointed head of state. There should be some uh, process whereby our democratically elected institutions, in the House of Representatives and the Senate have a say in that. There's various models. That's one of the things that's held back the change in Australia, is uh, the failure to agree on a way forward.
1: There was an opinion poll released by the Australian Republican movement which suggested that 66% of people said that King Charles doesn't represent their values and 64% said that the monarchy is opposite of Australian values such as equality and the fair go. Now you can have all of these opinions which suggest that these values don't represent Australia or the new king doesn't represent them but when it comes to a vote or a referendum there'd still be a lot of hesitation to make a change to a republic and As Anthony Albanese said, there's still a dispute about what sort of model the Republic should adopt. So if there's anyone out there hoping that Charles might be the last King of Australia, there still might be a way to go before we reach that stage, I think.
2: It's really interesting that a Republican Prime Minister would choose to go in the stead of the Governor-General, who is, of course, the King's representative and the king is a representative of the crown, I would have thought that the Australian Republican movement would have pushed a little harder for the change. It's interesting that they found that Charles's values aren't in a line with Australia, as some of his values would be. He's a committed and genuine, I believe, environmentalist. This doesn't mean to say I support the position of the king, by the way. <laughs> I'm not one of those royal, oh, he's just like us. He has spoken about the importance of community and egalitarianism and fairness. Uh, He's much more than his mother, who was, let's be fair, beloved in certain parts of the community. Uh, He's much more closer to Australian values in some ways than his mother ever was, and, and certainly his father. But I think it's right that people in Australia feel a disconnect to him. Some of this is that he's got to fill the shoes of his deeply beloved mother. I wasn't that over-fan of her. I understood that she was doing a job rather than living it up. And the job she did, she did pretty well, even if we didn't think the job needed to be done. But I think that it's time that Australia, it's past time, Australia broke free of the shackles of this medieval tradition that doesn't even work in a secular society. If you're there by the right of God and you're in a secular society, how does that balance? And in short, it doesn't.
1: Absolutely, it doesn't balance out. But we're also meant to shout out an oath of allegiance to the king, and this will be known as the homage of the people, and it's supposed to be a chorus of millions of voices all around the world when the king puts his hat on. I actually prefer the Scottish approach to the coronation,
0: it's up, you
1: that was the crowd at a football game between Celtic and Glasgow Rangers in Scotland and they were just letting King Charles what they know about this whole coronation business but a move to an Australian Republic with an Australian head of state not some king who resides in Britain to me it just seems like such a simple proposition but there's enough resistance out there in in the Australian community to avoid making a change to a republic. There's always conservative spoilers out there for whatever reason, but within the Commonwealth of Nations... 36 of the 56 countries in that group are already republics. Barbados became a republic in 2021 and their world hasn't fallen apart. There's a number of other countries in the Caribbean who will also hold referendum in the near future. Scotland is keen to hold another referendum on independence and leave the UK after all the dramas after Brexit and the revolving door of prime ministers. So they'll become a republic as well in the near future. Now, Britain can do whatever they like. All of these other countries can do whatever they like. But for Australia, this seems to be an anachronism and an anomaly. And it's okay for countries to have their quirks and anomalies. But first of all, there needs to be a political will to make the change the timing has to be right and then the mood for change has to be there in the electorate as well and I think it's essential for all of those three conditions to be met otherwise it's going to fail in the same way that the 1999 republic referendum failed
2: yeah if it ain't broke don't fix it it was really the argument of the last referendum I think it's broken. I think that we've had some of the worst governments we've ever had in the history of federation, and there wasn't much that could be done. So the system is broken. And I think we need a bit of leadership over this, not just from the Australian Republican movement, but from conviction politicians who have the opportunity, who are in power and can move towards it. I know they've already committed to one really important referendum, and this may be why Anthony Albanese is holding off. He wants to get the voice through. And then we can look at the Republic. And that is an argument I understand. And I know governments can do more than one thing, but referenda are hard. Referenda are um, important and you only really get one shot at them, a generation anyway. There's no guarantee, as you rightly pointed out, that a Republican referendum would get up, despite opinion polls and the will of the Australian people. Again, I'm wondering if, in this case too, he's playing the long game and that it will be slated later for this term or more likely next. And I'm hoping he's played his cards right.
1: an idea that we've been talking about for some time that's starting to gain some traction and become more prominent, and that's the idea of politics of the centre-right going through a reorganisation and reformation. And Australia has had a long history of smaller political parties forming and either disbanding quickly or staying around for a long, long time, and that includes the Democrats, Democratic Labor Party, Australian Greens, Qatar's Australia Party. Palmer United Party, One Nation. There was also the Australian Labor Party, Anti Communist Party, some time ago. That's quite a bit of a mouthful, but that didn't last for very long. But we don't see a new major party forming very often. And the last time that this happened was with the formation of the Liberal Party in 1944. Now it is far easier to work with what you've got and trying to make changes and there were suggestions in 2004 after they lost their fourth federal election in a row that the Labor Party should disband and reform in a totally different way only for them to go on and win the 2007 federal election. So we can never totally write off a political party but if the creation of a new major political party is ever going to happen this is probably the best time right now. It is, I
2: think. They've got tiny numbers in office at state and federal level. When you look at the big hole in Western Australia where there's only two in the lower house and not that many in the upper house, the 19 or 20 in New South Wales seems big. (laughs) But now is the time when you have this level of desolation. It's easier to build from there than if it was doing okay and if it it was holding on in New South Wales, Perrottet became Premier again and it would be hard to reform the party. But with only the fairly moderate Tasmanian Liberals in power, they might be the model to reform the party over. Now's the time. It's reminiscent not only of 1929 where the Labour Party splits and it quietly reforms. J.H. Gullen was basically left with the shell of a party and it stays out of office till 1942 when uh, John Curtin leads an invigorated and energetic and one of the great parliaments in Australian history. But the Liberal Party take the Labour right who had left, led by Joseph Lyons, and Lyons is such a good vote winner, they won't let him leave and he dies in office. He dies in 1939. Now, by 1939, the United Australia Party, as they were then called, was worn out. It was seen as being too close to big business. It was out of touch. Hold on. That happened in 1929 with the uh, nationalists. Wait a second. It happened in 1943. And it's happening now. Wait a second. Is there a pattern here? The Liberal Party, and it's been called that before, and it's been called as... You know, obviously a variety of other names, actually works best when it thinks about the middle class, when it thinks about ordinary people, not big business. So the Liberal Party should reform. I suspect it will rename itself. And I'm wondering if there'll be a split into two parties, like Labor did in 54 and in 29, in which you have the conservative Liberal Party and you have a more moderate, a Liberal Party. That will make it very hard to win elections, of course. They'd have to coalesce and start all over again. But it may be the way they have to go.
1: There's a number of reasons for all of this going on at the moment. Like The two-party political system has almost become sclerotic and we've been saying this for some time but the vote for the major parties is going down but they still hold the majority or most of the seats in parliament they received 68 percent of the primary vote of the 2022 federal election but they actually hold 90 percent of lower house seats the system does favor the major political parties and the smaller parties tend to be dominated by right-wing populists who think that everything's terrible and they can do much better but they All they end up doing is becoming a political party of complaint. And if you're thinking that I'm talking about One Nation and Pauline Hanson or Clive Palmer, you'd be absolutely right about that. (laughs) So we're probably not looking at a smaller political party forming and slowly taking over the Liberal Party, but a larger structure that is either a takeover of the party or renaming or rebranding of the Liberal Party, as you suggested before, David. But before people start saying, well, that's all ridiculous and too difficult to achieve... Now, this example refers to a different political system, but En Marche in France, that was where Emmanuel Macron formed the political party in 2016, and that party won the presidential election in 2017. And that shows that politics can move pretty quickly. Macron came from a socialist background, but En Marche tried to be inclusive of left and right politics and He'll be the president until 2027 and now he is having a lot of political problems trying to change the French pension system, but generally his presidency has been a success. And I know that that's a different political system, but it's pretty much exactly the same situation that happened in Australia in the 1930s that you were talking about before, David, when the United Australia Party was formed and that was during the Depression, there was also that Labor split. The United Australia Party did have that charismatic leader in Joseph Lyons and they linked up with the Nationalist Party and seven months later they won the 1931 federal election in a landslide victory. So it is rare, but it can happen in Australian politics. It, yeah, it can.
2: And I guess it's also fair to say that when we call Lyons charismatic, that's a relative term <laughs> compared to a Whitlam or a Hawk. He wasn't that type of charismatic. He was closer to your Howard, but Lyons was a decent speaker with a good turn of phrase and was seen as being a man of principle, helped by a media that saw him act in their interest. The one thing that the other two reforms had was obvious leaders in Lyons and in Menzies. Bridget Archer's the main name, but I'm not sure that she's obvious in the way that Menzies and Lyons were. And of course, when I'm saying that, when I'm well aware of the record of Australian female politicians, it's not that she's a woman. I think in many ways she'd be a very good leader and even an excellent leader of a reformed Liberal Party. It's more the fact that I'm not sure she's quite ready for it yet, maybe. I'm not sure she quite wants it yet. Apart from Bridget Archer, though, there's not a lot of contenders that spring to mind that could unite a sad and, and I mean sad is emotionally sad and grieving party membership and then get further members in and more people voting. And that's the big problem. Where's the talent that can look into the future? And does Bridget Archer have enough support within the party? And that's probably the main thing. They're talking about this endorsing her. And yet, outside the party, she's seen as possibly the future. So the party's in a lot of trouble.
1: A lot of this is food for thought and speculation, but political parties do need to have a charismatic leader who can unite and have popular appeal. The Liberal Party hasn't actually got that at the moment, and perhaps centre-right politics needs to reorganise itself in a way that is beyond what it's capable of doing at the moment. It's very hard to build up a new political party from scratch but it is easier if it's created to fill a void and my feeling is that there's probably a lot more political pain that has to be dished out before they reach this stage where the Liberal Party is dissolved and taken over by someone or something else but there's more people talking about it there's more political academics and theorists publishing material about it and the more that it's thought about and discussed the closer it becomes to being realised and that's not to say that it will happen but all of these changes do have to start from somewhere. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.